This talk was given in New Bethesda, South Africa, on June 22, 1983. The speaker is Joseph Goldstein. The topic, The Eightfold Path. The other night I spoke about the Four Noble Truths of the Buddhist teachings. That is his investigation and exploration the fact and the nature of suffering in our lives, the cause of it, the possibility of freedom, the possibility of coming to an end of suffering, of bondage. And the fourth noble truth, which was the path or the way. Tonight I'd like to elaborate on that fourth noble truth. As Sharon mentioned earlier, in the Buddhist teaching, everything seems to be in numbers. The Four Noble Truths, tonight is the Eightfold Path. Because the Buddha elaborated the way of practice, or the path to liberation, in eight aspects. You'll see that as we discuss them, it's an amazingly comprehensive system of mind development, in that it touches every aspect of our lives. And what's important, especially as we're coming to the end of the retreat, is to understand that spiritual practice or meditation practice is our life. It's not a part of it. It's not something we do some of the time. But if we really understand what practice is about, we see that our whole life is practice. And everything we do, every activity, every aspect, is a part of it. What's this eightfold path of practice? The path that leads to liberation, to freedom. The first step in this path is right speech. And that's quite a big one. Because when you reflect, you see that we spend an enormous amount of energy in speech in our lives. We spend a good part of every day talking. And yet very rarely do we stop to consider how we're using that energy. Are we using it skillfully? Are we using it unskillfully? What are the mind states behind it? What's the result of our speech? It's a very powerful force in our lives, in the world. And the Buddha singled it out as being something very important to look at. What are aspects of right speech? One, obviously, is saying what's true really undertaking a commitment to truthfulness or to honesty. One time, the Buddhist son, who became a novice at the age of seven in the order, and then was finally enlightened at the age of 20, in that interim between seven and 20, on a few occasions the Buddha gave a discourse specifically directed towards his son, and in one of these, which is called Advice to Rahula, 
which was his son's name, he said the following, and it's about right speech. He said that we should never, whether for our own sake or for the sake of somebody else, say that which is untrue. That's a very uncompromising statement. But can you feel the immense power that comes from that commitment? The commitment to being totally straight. Dishonesty, and it takes many forms from slight exaggeration to blatant lies, and there's the whole range of dishonest speech, it weakens the mind because then there's the paranoia of somebody finding out. And so then we have to make a little cover story to protect the initial little falsehood. And we build this elaborate, complicated superstructure of justification and rationalization, all built on that moment of not paying attention to our speech. And it's interesting just to watch the ways that we're not totally honest and what's behind that. You know, what kind of self-image we're trying to project or protect. Now, I've mentioned, I think, a few times that at our center in America, every year we teach a three-month retreat. And pretty much like this, and it's intensive and in silence. And the last five days of it, we break the silence, we call it Integration Week. Now, just a chance for people to uh, start relating again to one another. We have discussion groups and chance for people to talk. And one of these groups, at the end of a three-month retreat, we were talking about right speech and honesty. And this one fellow said in the group that he was watching himself in talking to all these people who he had been sitting with for three months in silence, he said, whenever the subject came up of, you know, how long, how long did you sit in your practice, he would always add 15 minutes right, to, his, <laughs> to his record. And it struck me just as being such a common, you know, how we, just slight exaggerations or manipulations or shadings coming from a place of some identification with the self-image, you know, with the self. And so this step in the Eightfold Path of right speech really challenges us to pay very careful attention to how we're using, how we're using language. When I first got interested in Buddhism and in practice, I was in the Peace Corps in Thailand. And just the very beginning of meditation, but I was reading and studying about the Eightfold Path and about the precepts and about right speech. I decided to make an experiment in an effort to practice right speech that I was not going to speak about any third person and no gossip. If I had something to say, I would say it to them rather than about them to somebody else. And I was amazed to find out 
that 90% of my speech was eliminated. <laughs> it was just so startling to see how much of my energy, you know, in communication, was bound up in talking about other people. And a lot of that talk had to do with judgment, of one kind or another. You know, it wasn't necessarily malicious, but it was the judging mind having an opinion. By restraining, refraining from that kind of speech, a few things happened. One is, since it, since it occupied such a vast proportion of what I said, I became much more silent, and my mind became much more silent. And I found also, because I wasn't manifesting in action the judging mind so much, the judging mind got a lot less, both of other people and of myself. So we don't, know, we don't always realize that not only does speech come from thoughts in the mind, but the speech also reinforces certain patterns of mind. When we begin to pay attention to our speech and to refine our awareness, it has a very dramatic effect on the quality of our minds. So that's one important area in our lives to really be mindful of and to pay attention to. It's very powerful. Speech is, speech is a potent force. That's right, speech. The second aspect of this Eightfold Path is called right action. And in right action, the Buddha spoke of three things. He spoke of restraint or refraining from killing, from taking the life of other beings, is one aspect of right action. And again, this demands of us an increased level of sensitivity to other living beings. I think most of us don't go around killing other humans, although people do that. But I wonder how much care we take in not killing ants, you know, or mosquitoes, or flies, things that we consider pesty, and small enough, somehow we equate value with size, you know, value of life, and if it's small enough, it doesn't matter so much, it's not so important. But that's a very species, size, centered point of view. And this restraining from killing, restraining from taking the life, in the positive way of expressing it, cultivating a reverence towards life, enables us to establish a connectedness with all life forms. Now, have you ever just observed different, different life forms, you know, animals uh, of different kinds? And connected with that sense of the oneness of the life force, and it's shaped and expressed through different forms. You know, so 
in humans it's expressed in the various activities we do in the various speech that we use and in dogs it's expressed in wagging tails and barks you know in cats it's expressed in what cats do and the form conditions the manifestation but the life principle is the same to be sensitive enough and reflective enough about the oneness and the interconnectedness so that we establish a reverence towards life and appreciation. Sometimes it takes some extra work. One time when I, when I first came back to America from the Peace Corps and very enthusiastic about practice and working with the precepts, was working with this one of not killing. And I came back and was living with my family. And it was summertime, and there were a lot of flies in the house. My grandmother was living with us, and she had this old fly swatter. You know, I was going around, <laughs> whopping the flies. I came back and said, wait, I'll take care of the flies. Well, some people are very good at just, you know, catching them. I'm not, I'm not so agile. So what I did, I'd get like a glass or a cup, you know, and I'd wait for the fly to land, and I'd, you know, catch it and then slip a piece of paper and take the fly out. It took hours <laughs> to get rid of all those flies. It's worth some time and consideration and effort to develop this respect. Because not only is it purifying for our own minds, that is not to be expressing an action, that aversion, which killing always involves some kind of aversion or hatred or ill will. Needless to say, it's salubrious for the fly, or the mosquito or whatever. And so just to work with that, you know, in our lives, to, to learn the principle of coexistence, Not killing, not stealing is another part of right action. Again, there's an obvious meaning, you know, you don't take that which doesn't belong to you. But there's another level of it, which I think is becoming increasingly obvious to many of us, and that is that it's not only not taking that which doesn't belong, but having a respect for the environment, you know, that by exploitation and using too much. But it is a kind of stealing. It's a stealing from the collective resources of the planet, of all of us. Gary Snyder, who's quite a well-known American poet, who's writing this one essay, uh, written in a book of his, in which he commented, uh, rather tongue-in-cheek, that In the last 10 years, 15 years, people seem to, no, the, the, wisest, the, the wisest people in the country seem to have learned that we're living in an environment. You know, as if that's this startling discovery. And yet it is a startling discovery because very often we don't act as if we realize that everything is interdependent. 
You know, we're not acting in isolation, either as an individual or as a species. And there's a certain responsibility that we have. And that's part of this step in the Eightfold Path, to pay attention to our actions with respect to the environment around us. Not killing, not stealing. The third part of right action has to do with sexual misconduct. For many of us, our intimate relationships are a very important, large part of our lives. And it's also a part of our lives that often seem to involve a tremendous amount of confusion and suffering when we don't pay careful attention to it. And a lot has to do with not understanding this aspect of what is sexual misconduct and what's appropriate conduct. And it's not so much, I think, you know, creating a list of, well, this is okay to do and this isn't okay to do, because obviously, you know, there's cultural mores which uh, change, both from place to place and in different times. But there's an, there's an underlying principle which doesn't change. And that principle is that we should refrain from those actions in our sexual lives which cause pain or suffering to ourselves or to other people. If what we're doing is causing suffering to somebody or to ourselves, it's a pretty good sign that something is not exactly in harmony. Because that area of our lives can be the expression of a tremendous amount of love and a tremendous amount of harmony. And when it's not, it's something to look at. Now, to see whether we're doing something out of greed or out of desire that actually is unwholesome and unskillful. That's as much a part of Dharma practice as sitting in this hall. And so it's an area of our lives, it's part of the Eightfold Path to pay attention to and to look at. So there's right speech, there's right action, which is not killing, not stealing, refraining from sexual misconduct. The third part of this Eightfold Path, and these first three steps really have to do with our life in the world, is right livelihood. Again, for all of us, somehow we have to connect with a way of making a living. The Buddha spoke of some professions which obviously are unskillful in that they either involve dishonesty or killing. For example, he spoke of, you know, hunting or fishing <laughs> or dealing in weapons, things which, which obviously cause harm to other beings as not being very skillful. But what does right livelihood have to say to the rest of us who are not particularly engaged in those actions, there's a principle, again, involved in this. And that has to do with an attitude of mind. It doesn't have so much to do with our particular profession. The attitude underlying right livelihood 
is the attitude of service. Can we do what we do regardless, you know, whether it's working in an insurance office or pumping petrol or being a teacher or whatever, like being a tennis star? Can we do what we do with an attitude of service, of helping, of offering our energy for others? There's a story of Kalu Rinpoche, who is this wonderful old Tibetan meditation master. He was visiting the States one year in Boston, and they took him to see uh, the aquarium. There's a big aquarium in Boston, a lot of big tanks and fish. And as they took him through the aquarium, at every tank, right, he would stop for a minute and he would kind of tap on it to call the attention of the fish. When all the fish were, you know, paying attention, he would chant, Om Mani Padme Hum. Right? It's like blessing the fish. Can you imagine going through life relating to every being you meet with that sense of offering a blessing? That's an amazing quality of compassion, of service, of love. We don't necessarily have to you know, go from house to house in New Bethesda saying, Om Mani Padme Hum, <laughs> which might be a little odd. But we can cultivate this sense of in our work, with people we meet, cultivate, cultivate an attitude of giving, of generosity. And this means that it's important to pay attention as you go through the day doing whatever kind of work you do, it requires paying attention to the quality, to the attitude in your mind. Because it's not going to particularly happen by itself. You know, it's not necessarily the habit of mind that we all have. It will take cultivation. And in order to cultivate it, we have to be paying attention to our minds. So there's right speech, there's right action, there's right livelihood. The next three in this Eightfold Path have to do with a certain kind of mind training. And the first of them is right effort. Sharon spoke a lot about right effort. It's the foundation. It is absolutely the foundation, the root of any kind of development. Because without effort, without arousing the energy to practice, our minds just stay in the old habit patterns of conditioning. There's a Tibetan phrase which describes right effort. It was, I think, said by Milarepa great Tibetan yogi, in, in teaching his disciples, he said, hasten slowly. And there's a wonderful, it's just a wonderful image, because it suggests, the hastening suggests a quality of urgency. And there is an urgency in our practice. 
there's an urgency in our lives. And one of the reflections which um, helps to arouse right effort and energy is the reflection on the preciousness of the human birth. In the Buddhist cosmology or scheme of things, to take human birth is very rare. It's not by accident that we're all here. It's the result of tremendous amount of wholesome karma, wholesome past actions. And even once being born as a human, to have the conditions right for us to connect with Dharma practice is even more rare and more precious. And that reflection of how fortunate and rare it is to have the opportunity to practice can, can arouse this, this effort. Well, there's a famous simile the Buddha used to describe the preciousness of human birth. He said, imagine, imagine a big ocean, huge ocean of the Atlantic. And on top of the ocean is a yoke of wood, just like a round yoke of wood that's just floating, you know, on the surface, tossed about by the wind and the waves. And just see if you can, can visualize this yoke of wood in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, and you know, just being blown about. At the bottom of the ocean, someplace, is a blind turtle. And once every hundred years, the turtle surfaces. He said the likelihood of that turtle surfacing and having his head go through the yoke that's just kind of being tossed around someplace on the surface of this ocean, the likelihood of that turtle surfacing with its head through the yoke is greater than the likelihood of a being born in one of the lower realms of existence taking birth again as a human. Why is that? Because in those realms, it's very difficult to be creating or making the wholesome karma which has its fruit as human birth. There's not that much opportunity. So when you have a big enough picture you know, of this whole thing, this whole show, then the reflection on how precious our life is gives a tremendous urgency and motivation to our practice. It really fuels right effort. That's the hasten part. But it's not just hastening, it's not just this tremendous efforting, it's hasten slowly. Because if we get too caught up and too goal-oriented and too ambitious, we just get more uptight and more tense. And so what's necessary is to be at the forward edge of effort without forcing, without struggle. It's really a quality of balance. When you leave here, and go back to your daily life, one of your biggest challenges is going to be to discover what right effort means for you. You know, here there's a supportive environment and there's a schedule and there's bells and there's a lot of things to help you, you know, make 
the appropriate effort. Now it's like you're being tossed back out into the world, and there's not much support. There isn't. You know, it's not this kind of sensitivity and awareness is not particularly a cultural value. And so there's not a lot of support out there for this. Mostly what's supported, you know, is more greed and more judgment, more wanting, more sense of self and ego. And when we're going the other direction from that, of letting go, and less self, and less self-image, it's a tremendous challenge. You have to keep right effort in mind as being very much a part of your consideration in your life. How can I live? In what way can I live my life that I'm cultivating this factor of the Eightfold Path, this factor of right effort? It's essential because without it, nothing else happens. So there's right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort. The fifth, the fifth aspect of this Eightfold Path is something we've been working on a lot in this retreat, is right mindfulness. Mindfulness means noticing what's happening in the moment. Seems so simple, doesn't it? Just noticing what's happening in the moment, without interpretation, without analysis, without judging, without comparing, just being present for what's happening, whether it's the breath, or sensations, or sounds, emotions. There's a story from the time of the Buddha, which expresses the whole teaching in a very short um, summary. It seems that there was this famous old man living in India who had a lot of students and disciples, but this man knew that he was not enlightened, even though all his students thought he was. He knew in himself that he wasn't. And so he was he was also very sincere and open, and so he went in search of somebody who could teach him. Heard of the Buddha, and he went on this long journey, you know, all the way across India. He met the Buddha in this small town, and at that time, it was in the morning, the Buddha was going through the streets uh, collecting alms food. And the man came up to him and he said, Please, sir, teach me. I've come all this way. I want to, I want to understand. And the Buddha said, please wait. You know, we'll go back, we'll have breakfast, we'll eat, I'll be glad to teach you. This man says, I can't wait, please teach me now, I have to know now. You know, I may die, you may die. He was talking about urgency. And again the Buddha said, wait, you know, we'll finish here, go back. Here I am standing with my bowl full of food, it's difficult. A third time, the, the man insisted, you know. And the Buddha was so impressed with his commitment and his urgency and his sincerity. Being the Buddha, he knew how to do it. So this is what he told this man. 
He said, in the scene, that is seen with the eyes, there is just what is seen. And in the heard, there is just what is heard. And in the sensed, that is smell and taste and sensed in the body, there is just what is sensed. And in the thought, there is just what is thought. In the seen, there is just what is seen. And in the heard, just what is heard. In the sensed, just what is sensed. And in the thought, just what is thought. There is just what there is in each moment. No self, no I, all of that's extra, all of that's a conceptual overlay. In each moment there is just what there is. A moment of seeing, of hearing, of sensing, of thinking. The man heard this and in all these wonderful Buddhist stories he got enlightened. And it was, he was ripe, just enough. And the story goes on to say, actually there's a little postscript to it, that just afterward, after he had heard this teaching and gotten enlightened, this wild cow came up and gored him and he died. And it's like somehow it had that premonition, but you know, he made it. <laughs> Do you see how simple right mindfulness is? Our minds have gotten very complicated. But mindfulness and the whole understanding of Dharma is very simple. In the seen, just the seen. In the heard, just the heard. In the sensed, just the sensed. In the thought, just the thought. And so that's what our practice is. Really what right effort is, it's the effort to be mindful. To be aware in each moment of actually what's happening not lost in our story about what's happening. And as you've seen in this past eight or nine days, what an incessant storyteller our mind is. It makes stories up about everything. You know, about the thoughts, about the sounds. You know, can you hear the sound without making up the story bell? end of sitting, time to get up. Oh, I'm so glad he rang it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> In the herd, there is just what is heard. It's so simple. In the scene, just what is seen. In the thought, just what is thought. This is right mindfulness. It's the keystone of the whole path. Everything comes out of mindfulness. So there's right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. Concentration means steadiness of mind. And again, one of the great things we learn on retreat, and, and it's really a tremendous insight, even though it may not feel like an insight, is we begin to see how unconcentrated our mind is, right? how difficult it is to keep it steady. And steady does not mean, in this sense, locked into any one object. So the purpose of practice, of Vipassana practice, is not to be able to sit and stay with the breath for an hour. That is not the purpose and it's not the direction we're going in. Concentration in the sense that we're developing it means 
concentration in each moment on whatever is arising. So it could be the breath, sensation, sound, thought. And each moment the mind is steady on it, instead of agitated and restless and lost in our thoughts and daydreams. Concentration is power of mind. That's the force which will penetrate through all the different layers and levels of mind and understanding. And so it's an important, it's an important aspect to work with. Mindfulness brings concentration. In every moment of paying attention, the concentration is there. There's one aspect of right concentration which would be helpful for you to understand because it's commonly misunderstood. And that is people have the idea that concentration of mind is this power or faculty that if they practice really hard in you know, 25 years from now, maybe, maybe the mind will be concentrated. Just as an experiment, again, which we did early in the retreat, if you would just move your arm slowly, feeling it, just feeling it as subtly and as microscopically as you can. Seeing how carefully you can feel the sensation of the movement. Is there any problem in being concentrated? Did any of you have a problem with that? The fact that the, the potential, the capacity of mind is there. It's not something we have to wait 25 years for. The mind has the capacity to concentrate. It's one of the faculties of it. We simply have to exercise it. We have to take the care. We have to remember to pay that kind of attention. And it's just to remind you again that it's possible for all of us to do it, as you just saw in this, in this moment of moving the arm, the mind can be totally present, totally focused. It's simply arousing the effort, arousing the energy to do it. So there's effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. The last two steps of this Eightfold Path have to do with an understanding or development of mind. And the first of them is right thought. And right thought has two levels. On one level, it's cultivating thoughts of love and compassion and renunciation and generosity, as opposed to thoughts of ill will or cruelty or greed. Because you see that our actions follow from our thoughts. And so if we are practicing or if we cultivate unconsciously or ignorantly thoughts of greed or thoughts of anger or thoughts of ill will, those are the patterns that get stronger and then our actions follow from that. As we cultivate right thought, as we did last night in the loving-kindness meditation, we actually practice wholesome thought. Right? Thoughts of generosity, of love, of compassion. 
then the actions that we do begin to stem from those wholesome thoughts. There's another level of right thought, which really has to do with seeing the nature of thought. And that is seeing that all thought is empty. And this paradox of these two levels was expressed by one Zen master in America. He said it very well, he said, there's no right and no wrong, but right is right and wrong is wrong. And somehow we have to understand that paradox, that there's no right and no wrong, that essentially everything is empty, right? it's all just arising and passing, it's empty phenomena. And at the same time, right is right and wrong is wrong. So, for example, when we're sitting and thoughts are coming and going, it doesn't matter what the thoughts are saying. If we're simply sitting back and watching this passing show, they can be the most murderous thoughts in the world, the most perverse thoughts. And if there's no identification with them, right? if you're just sitting and it's like watching this you know, subtitle on a screen, there's no problem, because then we're on the level of seeing the emptiness of them. When we act on our thoughts, when we give the thought energy, then it's very important to discriminate between right thought and wrong thought, or wholesome or unwholesome. Our actions proceed from our thoughts, and so it's essential that we be mindful of the thoughts that are going on in our mind. Because otherwise we find ourselves in the middle of actions, often ones that are unwholesome, without being aware of it. Right thought. The last step in this Eightfold Path, and actually as the traditional list is given, it's actually the first step, but I like to build up to it, is right understanding. It's really the development of wisdom, of insight. And there are two levels of insight. One level of insight has to do with understanding the laws governing our lives in the world. How is it that things are happening? And the basis of this, which we've touched on just very briefly, or which you can explore you know, in your own studies as you leave here, is the law of karma, which basically means that every action we do brings about a result. We're not acting in isolation. That every action has a force, has an energy, and that energy brings about a certain result. And the karma of an action is determined by the motivation behind it. And so if we act motivated by greed, or by hatred, or by delusion, that motivation is like planting a seed that's going to bring back some kind of bitter fruit, unpleasant fruit. When we act motivated by generosity, which is non-greed, and love, which is non-hatred, and wisdom, which is non-delusion, that's planting the seed of a sweet fruit, of a happy result. When we understand that karma is the force 
which governs the unfolding of our lives, then we can begin to take responsibility for our lives. Instead of just kind of giving up and not understanding how things are happening and why things are happening to us and with us, begin to see that it's happening, everything's happening in a very lawful way. And that actually we can take responsibility. We are the heirs of our own past actions. And our actions in the present condition the unfolding in the future. It's crucial to understand. So it's one aspect, one level of right understanding. The other level has to do with the kind of insights that come very strongly in intensive practice. And that is the insight into impermanence. I hope you have all tasted or seen or experienced some deepening level the fact that everything is changing. Thoughts come and go and moods come and go and sensations in the body come and go and sounds come and go. And the more we watch and the more careful our attention, the more we see this process of change on very microscopic levels, instant to instant to instant. It's like experience is continually arising and vanishing, that there is nothing to hold on to. And it's precisely out of this insight into impermanence, this insight into the constant change of things, which deconditions the force of grasping. When we see that things are changing, it doesn't make any sense at all to hold on to things. Because we see that holding on and attachment will inevitably cause suffering. An example which was used by that Thai meditation master, um, which from Sharon read that um, reading the other night about the clear forest pool. His name is Ajahn Chah. Once we were visiting him and just talking about different aspects of the Dharma, and he held up a cup, you know, like this, and he said, what's the best way to relate to this cup? And he said, the best way to relate to this cup is as if it's already broken. Because then you use it and you take care of it, but you're not attached to it because you're relating to it as if it's already broken. It is already broken. In the sense that it is inevitably going to change. Every moment is arising and passing, and there is no way to hold on. That doesn't mean that we withdraw from experience. It doesn't mean that because this glass is going to someday break, that we don't use it, or we judge it or condemn it or say, stupid glass. <laughs> don't do that. We use it and we wash it and we appreciate it, but without attachment, because we understand totally and completely that it's going to change. All experience on every level, of the mind, of the body, of possessions, of relationships, of the planet Earth, of the galaxy, at whatever level we look, it is all changing. And it's just so amazing, because you go up to anybody on the street and you ask, do things change? 
everybody will say, yeah, things change all the time. But do we live our lives, you know, with that understanding? No, we don't, you know. Because every time things change that we don't want, we act surprised. Or as if it's a mistake, you know, don't change. And so, continual effort and mindfulness right, to experience this fact of change is a tremendously powerfully, powerful freeing force in our lives. Because as we see it and experience it over and over again, we stop holding on. Insight into change. Along with the change, and another level of the insight, is the inherent insecurity. That there's no security to be found in phenomena precisely because it's all changing. And so when we look for security, you know, in our bodies, body, don't get old, don't get sick, don't die. It's foolish. There's no security in relationships, there's no security in possessions. And to see that, Alan Watts, who probably many of you are familiar with, he wrote a lot of books on the Dharma and Buddhism. He wrote one book called The Wisdom of Insecurity. And so when we really see that there's no security anyplace, we can give up this frantic search for it. And we can settle back in the wisdom of insecurity, in the wisdom of letting go. So there's insight into impermanence, insight into insecurity. And the third of the great insights, which I've talked a bit about, and is just the, it's the crown jewel of the teachings, is the insight into selflessness. That experience does not refer back to anybody. There's no Orion, there's no Joseph, there's no I, there's no self, there's no ego behind experience. In the scene, there is just what is seen. In the heard, there is just what is heard. In the sense, just what is sensed. In the thought, just what is thought. The thought is thinking itself. There's no one who's having the thought. Understanding this selfless nature of experience is radically transforming of our understanding. And it takes a continual refinement of mind and attention to begin to understand it and to see it. So if you feel that you have not totally grasped selflessness and egolessness in these nine days, that's okay. Uh, it's just to suggest that there's another possibility from the one that we're most deeply conditioned to believe, that is the sense of I, the sense of self, that there's another radically different understanding which is actually more totally in harmony with the truth of things. And our practice is to uncover or to reveal or to illuminate this level of understanding. 
The Eightfold Path is right speech, right action, right livelihood. The way we live in the world, to pay attention to that, because it's as important a part of our practice as sitting in this hall is. Right effort, because without effort, both here in the meditation retreat and in our lives in the world, without the effort to be aware, nothing is going to happen. It's our challenge to see how to cultivate that. Right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration, right thought, right understanding. Now, and for me, as I reflect on this Eightfold Path, I appreciate the profundity of the Buddha's mind in the sense, in such a simple and straightforward elaboration of eight, eight aspects of our lives, it's such a comprehensive right, path of development, path of practice. It's the path leading to freedom. Do you have any questions? Um, the, uh, the path, um, what do you Is the path itself in the There are different levels of, um, of suffering and of freedom. It's the end of suffering on the level that when we're at, in a moment of practice, right, in a moment of mindfulness, there's no greed, there's no hatred, there's no delusion. Right? So in that moment, the mind is free. But it has not, that moment has not necessarily uprooted those factors from the mind. They're still latent, right? which means that in the next moment we, we may be filled with anger, or filled with greed, or filled with delusion. So we have the right concentration, then uh, we don't attach to it. Uh, or we don't, uh, if we have the right view, we don't, we don't uh, identify it. That's true. That's true. And um, it's just that until those are eradicated from the mind, we're still liable to them arising. Right? Which is why uh, we've all experienced there are times when we're mindful and the mind is is free of those uh, unwholesome factors, and everything's fine. And ten minutes later, we're forgetting and lost, and again, you know, there's greed in the mind or anger in the mind. And so another level of freedom has to do with what I described as that state of going beyond the mind, mm -hmm. right? to the unconditioned or nirvana, whatever word you want to use to describe it. And that's the level which uproots the defilements so that they don't arise again. Right. So it's just, it depends which level you're looking at. So in, in some way you could see the Eightfold Path as both the path and the path to freedom and it's also the expression of freedom. Right. It's both at the same time.
That's a good question. The the development of the metta meditation is um, it's really the development of um, a concentration practice. That is, it's focusing the mind both on visualization and certain thoughts and feelings, and it's using concepts which is what makes it different than Vipassana. It's using the concept of self to develop wholesome factors like metta, like loving-kindness. It's using the concept of being, oneself and and others. You know, may, may all beings be happy. On a more ultimate level, there are no beings, which is why the metta by itself does not lead to enlightenment. It's a, it's a wonderful adjunct, and it can create the, the pliability and softness of mind to develop insight. Right? But it's still working on the relative level of concept and being. And so it's important to understand that. It's a skillful use of those concepts. Is that clear? It seems that in egolessness it's difficult to contemplate urgency. That somehow there is a sense of urgency required in practice, but if there's no self to actually practice, then Right. When one is free of the concept of self, then there's no urgency. <laughs> There's, I mentioned that right away, Wu Wei. You know, another one of his lines was, as long as there's anyone to suffer, they will. And so as long as there's any sense of self, attendant upon that is suffering, is bondage. Right? When there's, there's real and complete freedom from that, then there's no problem. But whose memory is it? Who's, <laughs> who's, who's experiencing different levels of awareness? Or mind, who's experiencing mindfulness? Mindfulness is. In other words, We experience there, on different levels. Yeah. I, there are different levels of mindfulness, of concentration, of awareness, of effort. But all, all of those are, all of those factors function in their own particular way. They're not, they don't belong to anybody. Okay, there's no you using it. That, that's what's extra. In other words, there's the addition of the concept 
my effort or my mindfulness. It's sort of like, I'll give you another example of, and it, it's a hard one to, to grasp, so, I mean, I, it's good to reflect upon it and to keep looking, so you, you know, come to the actual experience. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.